0: Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast and find the information useful. Welcome to this episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Katie Van Valen at the Princeton Station, and we have a special guest today, uh, Daniel Rivera. Daniel is at Mississippi State University and and soon to be heading over to Arkansas. Uh, But today's focus is a little bit on um, finishing beef cattle. We thought that this would be a really good opportunity to jump in and thinking about some of our freezer beef Questions that we've had over the last year as we march up on, uh, no pun intended here in March, but as we march up on a year anniversary of COVID and the impacts that um, that had on our meat supplies. Katie, how are you today? Doing well, doing well. Are you keeping um, the uh, folks down there in good shape and everybody's happy with the rain that we've had? And,
1: you know, they could do without the mud, but we've had some nice weather. So hopefully that's. Drying up a little bit for us, but um, we're uh we're running full steam ahead here. We're getting ready to wean calves next week, so they they are busy.
0: And and Daniel, what's uh, the weather been like for you? You know, we talked last week that about a half of the U.S. is somewhat in a slightly dry to severe drought condition. What are things like in Mississippi?
2: Well, right now we're we're in pretty good shape, uh, especially down in the southern end of the state. Uh, we got some rain a couple of weeks back when that cold spell hit. Uh, and uh, I guess if you look at the weather, man, we're just a couple inches below normal uh, for this time of year. But uh, based on everything out here, everything looks good. Grass is growing. We're, we're in good shape.
0: Now you guys have the opportunity to use quite a few s- kind of seasonal, maybe cool season forward, just through the winter time to get started grazing a little earlier through th- did they make it through the winter okay? I know that, that last spell we had uh, probably put you um, at a sensitive time with some of those cereal grains, but what do your pastures look like that are on some of those winter annuals?
2: Well, down here our pastures look uh, look pretty good. Uh, we went into the winter uh, in good shape as far as our pasture quality, forage quality. Uh, normally we'll plant around September, October, and we'll be able to start grazing uh, my cool season grasses, uh, typically it's ryegrass around December. Uh, and then we can continuously stock that based on, you know, a lighter stocking rate until about May. Uh, we also do some put and take stuff with some of the cow herds. So it's, uh, for us, uh, annual ryegrass is really our cash cow uh, in terms of what we can really take advantage of from about December, November until May. Uh, Cereal grains uh, really aren't that widely used down in the southern part of the state. I think as you go further north, you see more of that. But uh, the, the good combination that seems to work well down here is our, our oats and annual ryegrass uh, blend. Uh, that oats allow, will come up a little sooner than the annual ryegrass to give you about you know, three to four weeks more grazing. So that, that really allows us to extend out that, uh, that grazing period.
0: Uh, are folks using like a crimson clover in with the ryegrass as well, or is it pretty much straight uh, grass?
2: It depends on the, the operation. There are some, some operations that will incorporate some clovers into the, into the annual ryegrass, uh, and that will help as that uh, annual ryegrass begins to decline in, in nutritive value in, the, in, in May, the, I guess mid to late spring, those clovers are, are coming up and they kind of keep that uh, nutritive value a little bit higher. Uh, the one drawback with uh, incorporation or the, those clovers is the the fact that it really limits what we can do as far as our uh, weed control in our subsequent pastures uh, a lot of the operations here if you're looking at the stalker side you know they're they're shipping cattle out in may so they don't really worry too much about the clovers uh, the cow calf guys that are really trying to extend out that that high quality forage they'll, they'll probably be more more in tune to to incorporating those legumes.
0: You know, Katie, we we don't see very many folks using annuals. Um, If if we are, we're using them as a cover crop, maybe after pulling out some tobacco or or corn silage, but everybody's really concerned about compaction. But uh, I think a few years ago, um, uh, Dr. Burris did some work down there at the Princeton station on grazing out some, cereal grains and that but do you know did that catch on with folks around there or do you see some folks trying to graze out some uh, cover crops or or annual winter annuals
1: not a whole lot I don't really think it it really took off I think you know on this end of the state with so many of of our producers also being big on the grain side I, I think they do get really worried about that soil compaction and And kind of think of the the grazing of cover crops as being something that that folks do further north and and you know it could be that that there are some missed opportunities you know for some of that down here so but yeah no it it hasn't it's not something i see widespread by any means
0: and i i think the you know, our, our soil types, Daniel, are, it depends on where you're at in the state, but they can be pretty heavy in clay. And um, I was looking the other day for some reason, and um, we typically get 15 to 18 inches of precipitation over the winter months. So um, it can be a bit of a challenge, Katie, as you said, trying to manage cattle grazing those and not cause some compaction. Well, um, Today, I I wanted to visit with uh, each of you because, um, you know, in in 2020, COVID led to some issues with some meat supplies and um, some challenges with folks, you know, thinking about trying to go to the grocery stores and, and seeing that there were Limited supplies, and our folks were limiting how much um, meat that people could purchase at a time, and it really did increase our demand for locally produced um, kind of freezer beef. And each of you have done a little bit uh, along those lines in the past uh, few months to help give us some, you know, additional information on feeding programs and you know ideal slash target harvest weights, and then also some of the challenges of just trying to get into pack uh, processors to get animals processed. But um, Daniel, I thought we'd start a little bit um, with what drove you to begin looking at uh, some of the freezer beef alternatives and and opportunities in Mississippi.
2: Well, um, it's pretty kind of a a long story. And uh, I had talked about this topic a lot. Uh, in the past with Paul Beck, and this was way before COVID, we just talked about, you know, different options for some of the smaller producers uh, in the respective areas when Paul was at Arkansas, uh, you know, what we could do as far as, you know, branching out, giving them a little bit more options for marketing their animals, and he talked about possibly finishing some cattle on grass, but not necessarily the grass-finished beef side of it, more of a conventionally fed animal, but just done on grass. And uh, I think they did a, a small project up in Arkansas. Cause, uh, and then uh, when COVID hit, we, we, we got hit with a with almost, a, I call it a one-two punch, uh, the initial calls that came in. Um, and again, to understanding where we're at, we've got a lot of people that grow cattle out on these annual grasses over the winter. And, you know, they'll, they'll take a four, 500-pound calf, starting it in in november december and they'll they'll market a a 750 800 pound animal in may and when you started to see some of the shutdowns the plants and you got those prices that just plummeted a lot of these folks here started to panic and say you know we put this investment in this animal now it's worth less than when we started what can we do to maybe capture some of that value So that's where that conversation began as ways to number one, they wanted to see if there's things they could do to maybe extend out that grazing period. And I know that's where some of the discussions about clovers and some of these other supplements came into play that maybe instead of marketing these animals in in April, let's stretch them out until maybe June when this probably passes. That that was one option. Another option that came up uh, was that, you know, if we put this investment in these animals why don't we just go ahead and take it out a little further, slaughter it, and then bring that investment back home so that way we have at least produced beef for the family. And then that began to branch out even more when we started to see some of those uh, uh, events at the shopping centers where there wasn't meat available. Uh, we began to think that, you know, uh, well, besides making meat for my family, how about if we take it one step further and we start marketing this beef to others to try and you know alleviate some of these uh, supply chain issues that we were running into, and it uh, I mean it 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 caught on like wildfire that that idea. I know that uh, in the months of May and June, to try and get an animal slaughtered in some of our facilities down here, the, the wait was until October. They were packed up that they were back backlog that much because. Everybody kind of had this same idea at the same time. Let's get these animals killed. And so it started this backlog among what we've got. And we don't have very many slaughter plants. Most of our slaughter plants here are going to be the, the smaller ones where, you know, a family can take a, an animal that they fattened out and kill it, and you'll have beef for the year. Uh, we're not federally inspected, so we can't necessarily slaughter anything and then market it for sale. A lot of things have to be more of a, a private one-on-one treaty, For example, I'll buy a steer, or Jeff will slaughter a steer, and I'll buy half of it. Uh, things like that, and that's that's how things are done here. Uh, but this really kind of uh, uh, led this this idea to people. Maybe we need to finish these animals out. And then when we talked to some of the folks at the Cattlemen's Association, uh, you know, they were concerned because. They were worried because what they saw when they went to some of these slaughter plants were, were carcasses and one of the one of the terms that I'll never forget was that we have these carcasses here that look like pretty large deer that are cattle simply because these folks just didn't know how to finish an animal and to what to what extent we needed to finish an animal. They assumed that you know a 700 pound steer was was good to go and, and they took it to the, the slaughter plant. Uh, not realizing that that's going to dress out to a pretty pretty light carcass with uh, uh, you know not much marbling or, or uh, some of those other attributes. So just the lack of knowledge, simply because we're not historically known to be a finishing animal state. You know animals aren't finished here typically. So uh, it just opened our eyes to the, the 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 opportunities that we could provide as far as education to some of these folks, you know, teaching them how to feed these animals, uh, what they need to do. And uh, again, too, I mean, I think it was a great educational opportunity. Uh, There were a lot of folks that thought they needed to do it. And when you start actually highlighting what they have to do, they realize that this, you know, is a little bit more than just putting a little bit of grain out and keeping them for a few more weeks, that you really have to put an investment into this animal if you're going to make a, a carcass that's going to be comparable to something you would you would purchase in the local store and uh again too, you know i think it's 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 an opportunity i think there's some operations that want to do it uh that have uh figured out how to do it uh and other folks you know maybe don't need to to, to you know just don't have the capacity to do it but one of the challenges that we've had here, we've got, well, we've got several challenges, in, in my opinion, I think, you know, the lack of uh, slaughter facilities. And, and surprisingly, uh, this weekend, I, I took my daughter out, and uh, when we were going down to the coast, uh, just as we were leaving the county, I saw that they're building another slaughter facility. So, uh, obviously, this this push is still continuing so much that someone sees enough opportunity there to invest into a, a, new, a new slaughter facility. So... Uh, you know, that's one of the, the, the challenges we've got, and then just the availability of, of what we can do uh, on site. Uh, historically, these operations here are going to be very focused on grazing, so we have very little mixing equipment, very little access to commodities. Uh, we can get commodities, but at times they're going to be hit and miss. We may get soy hulls this month and then the next month we may not have soy hulls we may have to look at corn gluten so we have a lot of uh uh byproducts that are fed and, and then it's it like i said smaller operations are are going to be at the mercy of the market as to what's available what the prices are uh and couple that with something that we you know it's difficult for a lot of these operations to mix something up and, and actually feed it to their animals so uh, when we started to look at this project, we wanted to look at something that, you know, a small operator could readily get these ingredients uh, not have to go through a bunch of hoops and uh, readily, easily mix them with a couple of five-gallon buckets and, and hand-feed the animals that way and still allow them to have access to pasture so we don't have to incorporate any type of roughage processing because, uh, you know, th- those type of... Uh, uh, that type of equipment and infrastructure here is is very limited.
0: It it sounds like you you've got a lot of the same challenges that we've had, and I know Dr. Renfro, our meat specialist, has you know often said early on that when folks begin into the finishing side, they're sending glorified feeder cattle uh, to the slaughterhouse, and they don't have the degree of marbling, and then they don't have the back fat that can lead to some issues with you know, cold shortening and potential toughness. And um, so there is a learning curve um, in regards to finishing beef to try and get it similar to what we might get in the in a retail grocery store. Katie, you've kind of started um, looking into this as well. Um, What were some of the reasons that you kind of felt like it was a time to begin looking at education programs and demonstrations on uh, finishing cattle for freezer beef production.
1: Yeah. Well, I must've had a little bit of a crystal ball because we all met in Lexington about 10 days before the world shut down last March. And I had pitched this idea for, for a finishing cattle program because even at that point, I felt like we had a number of producers who were, you know, doing freezer beef to some extent, but we didn't really have educational programs for them. And I was getting uh, a lot of questions from them about just some logistics and things like that. Then COVID happened. And um, we all know that, that, you know, demand for local beef shot up. And actually, if you Google the Google results for searching local beef, you see this huge spike, right at like March and April. And and actually, if you break it out by state, Kentucky was the third highest as a proportion of their total Google searches searching for local beef. So, um, I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. And so, um, but for a lot of the same reasons, we were hearing some of those same things that that cattle weren't being fully finished, um, you know, resulting in carcasses that that weren't uh, similar to to conventionally uh, raised carcasses, and and you know and I always think back if if I was a cow calf producer and and I've spent my whole time producing five hundred pound calves, well that thousand pound animal looks really really big to me, but in all reality, with today's finishing weights, that animal's just as far away from being finished as he is from being weaned, and so uh just helping folks understand the growth and development of those animals and, and how and the time that it takes um you know and and the resources that it takes. You know, it it sounds great to sell grass finished. And if you go to your farmer's market and you see somebody selling a grass finished beef at $10, $12 a pound for ground beef, that sounds like a big profit margin, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of resources to get that animal to that point. And so just helping people understand all that goes into it, all the different options that that are available to them, um, so that they don't run into this thinking that this is gonna, you know, be a a surefire way to make a profit in the cattle industry because you can you can also lose money at this pretty quickly as well.
0: I think that's a great point is um the need for our producers that are going to do this to really know what their costs are going to be and at least estimate them because when they go to sell beef, Daniel, like you mentioned, it might be the half or or a quarter Uh, on the rail and you need to know what to price that at to make sure you cover your cost and and the processing costs that go on Um, but you know as we looked at it too Katie I think that um, we had done uh, 2015 and 16 I believe it was we did the pasture to plate program which was really that it was taking the some seven to eight weight feeder steers of different types we had steers and heifers and a couple of Holsteins in each of the groups and there were three locations with 10 steers and heifers um at each and we finished them out and you know at that time both those years interest was eh, okay you know we'd start out with maybe 20 to to 30 people at uh, the first session and you know we'd have um a couple of sessions so that folks could come and watch the progress of the cattle and then also come into the coolers if they wanted to see the carcasses hanging in. Um interest began to wane pretty quick. And um, you know, then all of a sudden we have an issue with the supply chain and then the interest goes sky high. So um there are always opportunities, I guess, for us on the education side of of looking at these programs and um, I commend both of you for, for jumping in on this and trying to think about different ways and uh, providing more knowledge to folks to try and develop finishing systems at a local level. So uh, my hat's off to you you both. Daniel, tell us a little bit about um, what you did in, in Mississippi. You You had some cattle that you put on the finishing program and then uh, follow those cattle through. And you mentioned about the commodities and, and trying to find locally sourced or available type commodities. So tell us a little bit about what your finishing programs were for your steers. And
2: So we had uh, a group of heifers that we've been using for a project on rye grass and, uh, you know, they were, I think they were probably pushing 800 pounds when we, we pulled them off grass and in May and, uh, Again, you know, uh, we started this project in late May, early June. Uh, obviously, when you go through all the animal care and use approval protocols and all that stuff, so by the time we got all our ducks in a row, we started the project in June, and uh, these animals had come off of grass, uh, rye grass, so they were probably eight and a half, eight half, eight, eight and a quarter, and what we did, and I, I just going out to different operations and seeing what people can do and can't do. uh, You know, we had a a couple things that we wanted to look at. Uh, You know, we can get cracked corn somewhat consistently. We can get soy hulls somewhat consistently. Uh, And then also there's a mixing pellet that's available at just about all the co-ops they sell. it. It's It's a protein type supplement. You can feed it alone as a supplement to your cows or we've used it before as a, as a protein source for a a ration. So we essentially put together a couple rations that would be two ingredients, well, three ingredients. We we added in a a mineral as well, but we, you know, we had our soy hulls and our corn based uh, diet that I think was about 70, 75% of the, of the ration was soy hulls and, or corn. And then we made up the remainder of it with the mixing pellet and about 5% mineral to provide a, a decent mineral profile for for these animals. And those were limit fed at about 2% of the animal's body weight. At the same time, the animal had access to our warm season grasses, which would be bahia grass. So the grass essentially became the roughage component of that animal's diet, whereas we were providing the concentrate. Uh, Wanted to see if we'd have any issues doing this. Uh, We fed them once a day, similar to what an operation would do. Uh, and, you know, we weighed the cattle every 28 days. And on day 28, with the new body weight, we'd adjust their intake up more to reflect that. Uh, and we compared that to a control, which was going to be more of a, uh, and I hesitate to use the word, but it's it probably more similar to a conventional type ration. But we used ingredients that we could get here. We used gin moat, uh, which is a byproduct of a cotton ginning process as our roughage component, and then we used cracked corn, soy hulls, and then uh, our mixing pellet incorporated in and long along with the mineral. So we used locally available ingredients. Uh, what I did do with that ration, understanding that, you know, uh, a good part of my uh, PhD program was was looking at feedlot cattle, and even a postdoc looked at feedlot cattle. and. And you understand that when you start pushing animals at a really high concentrate ration, that there has to be a degree of discipline and management in managing those rations, which unfortunately, some of our producers may not have that ability to do. So this ration that we produced here was, while it was a complete ration, it was really high in roughage, not as energy dense as what you would typically see in a a standard finishing diet. But that was to offset any of these uh, management concerns that we might have essentially made it to where you could feed this ration with a little bit of, I hesitate to say slop, but you don't have to be as precise, uh, with your feed calls and your feed adjustments and still not cause any metabolic problems with the, with the animal in terms of acidosis. So it was a, it was a ration that we could, we could easily incorporate into just about any scenario and you could feed it. And, uh, with very little worry of causing any, any type of, uh, digestive upset.
0: And, and Daniel, the, the gin moat then was your source of roughage. These cattle didn't have access to pasture or hay. They were, they were in
2: pens. Uh, there was no, there was no grass for them. Uh, these animals were fed, uh, uh, this on an ad lib basis and the, the diet consisted, it was about a Probably about a 65% concentrate diet, 65-70% concentrate diet, more akin to a what a feedlot would call a starter diet, as opposed to a a finishing diet. But this allowed us to have that margin of error, safety, uh, in the event that we weren't able to, the event that a producer wasn't able to feed on time, or had to wait till that afternoon, or or hurricanes come in and you have to back them off, and and things like that. The, The things that we would encounter over here. So, uh, you know, those those were the three uh, diets that we examined. And what we found uh, when we did the overall results was that uh, in terms of performance, uh, you know, the conventionally or the the complete ration did better than the the two limit fed uh, diets. Uh, as far as average daily gain, I think they, they gained about two and a half pounds a day for a 140 day period compared to about two pounds, 2.1 pounds for both the, the limit fed rations, uh, which again, too, you know, if you're looking at it compared to a feedlot, uh, that's a lot lower than you would expect. But again, too, uh, that margin of error was in that, that safety cushion was in there. Uh, but surprisingly, because of the the fact that they were limit fed and uh, that we were only incorporating uh, two rations, our overall cost of gain was similar between all three groups, among all three groups, excuse me. So what we found is that either whatever method you're more comfortable doing would be similar in terms of a cost of gain. Now, you know, that's just preliminary results. We probably need to explore this more and look at other different management scenarios you know there's uh you know some of the criticisms that we've gotten or the feedback that we've gotten have been you know we could probably you know some people feel they can manage a a more energy dense ration and that's probably the case uh and you know you guys know dealing with extension we 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 can't really give a one-size-fits-all answer because a lot of it depends on the capabilities uh, of each individual producer so, while some people could probably manage a more energy dense ration uh we wanted to ensure that we did something that would be universally accepted and and uh, uh could be managed by 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 anyone
0: I think that's i mean that's a really good point and but it also shows that we do have a lot of flexibility in ration design and how we feed cattle and sometimes maybe we have to step back and think outside the box about what's available locally and not necessarily say, well, this is a typical feedlot ration and I have to use it. And so, um, you know, I, I was impressed, um, you know, your numbers that you mentioned, I, I did some finishing work uh, when I was at Wisconsin and I think it was, it was 2005 to 2007. we, finished 50 steers on a pasture finishing and my target was one percent body weight on supplement while they were out on grass and um, uh, it was uh, about two-thirds soy hulls and a third dry distiller's grains and um, pretty decent pastures you know cool season perennials bluegrass fescue orchard grass white clover a little red clover but uh, about two to Two and a half pounds a day gains were what we observed over those three years with those groups of cattle um, you know I, I think when I re- remember we had a control group that was pasture only and their gains were about one and a half to one point seven a day so when we when we look at performance um, it's going to vary pretty dramatically um, I was Trying to recall, and a um, uh, Glamo Scagli, our colleague over at Louisiana, did quite a bit of pasture finishing work, and I was trying to think that he was seeing gains of close to two pounds a day on straight fescue or straight alfalfa, and so there's certainly going to be some management considerations on how we how we manage that forage to keep it in a vegetative high quality standpoint to offset. Uh, the supplement because daniel you're at two percent of body weight roughly supplementation uh they probably were eating what another half to three quarters of percent of body weight on forage
2: yeah that that'd be that'd be about a fair estimate that's that's what we were thinking uh, and when you break down the the roughage component of the the total diet that's approximates what what they would have been eating uh if you break it down from a ingredient standpoint, which is what I was, which was what we were trying to do. We're trying to keep the the, the three types of diets similar in terms of how much roughage they'd, they'd be getting. Just one source would be from the actual pasture as opposed to the, the actual diet itself. Um, and with our bahia grass, you know, bahia grass is probably not the best quality forage. Uh, it's, it's a really good forage terms of a dry cow, uh, but as it starts to go on in the summer months, uh, nutritive value declines. But, uh, you know, we were just looking at it from a, a roughage component rather than a, a, an actual source of energy or protein for the animal. And I think, you know, if, if you really were to go on a little further and maybe look at this with a cool season grass or a, an alfalfa or a, a fescue, you could probably really push those gains a little bit more uh, because you can't take advantage of the the quality within those forages to somewhat complement what you're, what you're feeding.
0: So that, that's a perfect lead in Katie, I think for um, some of the things you're doing. And so you're, you've got a group of cattle that you've put out um, uh, and are feeding out to get finished here too. tell us a little bit about what uh, you're looking at.
1: Yeah, um, there's going to be quite a bit of similarity in, in terms of our thoughts and our reasoning for for the diets that we selected up here too. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing for me was was safety. And I came from a feedlot background as well out of Iowa State. And so, you know, I routinely, you know, see those, those typical feedlot diets and cattle gaining four plus pounds a day, you know, with an implant in their ear and that kind of thing. And I just knew that that didn't fit the scenario for, for what we're looking at here. And, you know, we don't have folks that are necessarily full-time feedlot operators to sit there and manage those cattle. And so um, that, that system wasn't going to work. And when you think about the, the type of consumer that, that folks are, are trying to market this beef to, you know, implants aren't, aren't necessarily popular there. So uh, none of our cattle have implants in their year. And we, uh, have a group that are in the barn, which I'm calling a little more conventional. Um, we do are trying to do some slick bunk management with them and, and being a little more aggressive with our feed calls, but the diet itself is not um, very hot at all. It's a grain mix, which is a, a three-way blend of, of corn, soy holes, and corn gluten feed, and then about 20% hay in the diet, uh, and then uh, some dried distillers in there as well. Uh, the cattle get a uh, top dress mineral that does have remincent in it. Uh, and I did that more just for uh, coccidia control more than anything. Um, so those are the cattle in the barn and they have been rocking and rolling at three to four pounds a day uh, up until this last 28 day period. And we'll talk about the reasons for that in a minute uh, then we have another group that are out on pasture, although for the majority of the time thus far, that's mostly been hay that they've been consuming out there ad lib and they are getting a, uh, a grain supplement at 1% of their body weight. Uh, and I did up that, uh, over the last 28 day period to, to be about 1.1, 1.2% of their body weight with the cooler weather that we had, um. That is a, again the three way commodity blend makes up eighty five percent of that that supplement they're getting, and then fifteen percent coming from dried distillers. Uh, these are things that that we can get pretty easily, and the three way tends to be kind of a popular uh, supplement anyways that folks might have on hand maybe for their cow herd. So it made sense to try to stick with something that, that people are used to feeding or may already actually have on their on their farm anyways. Um, so. I mentioned that that things were were going along pretty well until the last 28 days, and we had a that really bad cold snap, and then that was followed by some you know warmer 55 60 degree days, and our cattle in the barn went off feed. I mean they crashed and burned, uh, left about 60 to 80 percent of their feed overnight, and these are cattle that had had a slick bunk every single day in their feeding period, so. Um, that kind of hit them pretty hard. And then, you know, we slowly brought them back up uh, so that they wouldn't, you know, overindulge the next day. And so uh, it's been good for for my farm crew to to see how we manage those situations and that kind of thing. And it's important, I think is an important education moment uh, to talk about what happens when things don't go right. Um, So we'll see. We weighed them on Friday and gains are looking to be closer to to two pounds a day, whereas, you know, they had been three or four. The cattle out on pasture, same thing. Um, You know, their feed intake didn't go down, but they were out in the elements with all the snow and and ice and things that we had. So that put a little greater demand on them. And so I I think their average yield gains over the last twenty. 28-day period are going to be closer to one and a half, whereas they had been two and a half previously. So, you know, same thing. Just wanting to to offer a ration that that's easy for folks to get, easy for folks to feed, with the equipment and labor resources that that would be typical for our cattle producers, and then um, you know, showing a couple different ways to do that. Uh, We initially thought we were going to do a full grass finish treatment, um, but really, I just don't have the, the forage resources set up to do that, you know, in the time frame I had to, to plan for it. So, uh, that in and of itself is a teaching moment that you can't just jump right into a a fully grass finished program. Um, you know, if you don't have the forage resources for that.
0: And, and you've had some challenges as far as trying to schedule cattle to be harvested because we're doing these at our, at our meats lab on campus. But, um, you know, one of the things on your, I'm assuming on your barn fed cattle since they've been gaining so well that they did get a little heat stress because of the amount of back fat and mm-hmm. extreme temperature changes. But um, yep. you've been ultrasounding them. And so about how much, you know, from a back fat standpoint or that fat that covers that ribeye area where those nice ribeyes and T-bones come out of, how much fat are those cattle in the barn carrying?
1: About a centimeter as of Friday on average. And then uh, cattle out on pasture are going to be more about point eight on average. So I uh, definitely can see the differences there, and we'll at the end get all the economic data. I'm curious to see if that that follows through uh, for us as well. But yeah, they're they're rolling along. They'll they'll be finished when their their time comes. That's for sure.
0: So a, a centimeter would put us about what four tenths or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah and uh, three-tenths probably for the cattle that are on pasture, so you're you're getting, getting up there. Normally, half an inch to six-tenths yep. is typically what we would see in feedlot cattle being harvested. Yep. Um, contrast that, Daniel, to what you mentioned about the glorified deer, uh, where they may only have a tenth to two-tenths of an inch of back fat. Daniel, tell us a little bit about some of the carcass attributes that you've seen on your cattle, particularly – one of the concerns that we have is yellow fat coloring on cattle that are finished on grass and even with supplement compared to cattle that are on a, a hay kind of confinement type diet and just talk talk to us a little bit about what you saw on some of the carcass traits on your heifers. okay, so
2: um, to kind of bring up a point that and backtrack a little bit with with what Katie talked about, I think uh, uh, one of the things that we need to do as far as if we need to continue this program is we probably need to look at it at various times of the year because uh, you know what Katie saw during the winter months uh, and what we saw because when we fed our cattle out they were fed out over the summer months so heat stress was an issue uh, which probably hindered their performance now would they perform differently in the winter months down here I I don't know with the excessive amount of rain and, and mud I don't know but I think you know, if we really want to get a good handle on this, we we probably need to look at it from a, a year round perspective. But, uh, but going back to what, what you asked about, Jeff, when we looked at these carcasses, uh, we, we get, we too had the same issues that you all did, uh, or Katie's having, uh, where we have to take them to the meat lab. We took them to the meat lab to slaughter and we could only get in a couple days. And so, um, we haven't got all the carcass data back yet. They're still looking at that. Uh, as far as the yellow fat, we really didn't see that much of it. Uh, and I think my understanding is, is that they have to be on a, a a minimum and you guys probably know this better than I do, but I think it's a minimum of 90 days on a somewhat concentrate diet to allow that yellow fat to, to disappear and become replaced by the, the more traditional white fat. Um, and I think we, we were able to achieve that with these, with these animals, because obviously, you know, we fed them for about 140, 150 days. Um, so from our standpoint, we, we didn't see that issue uh, yet. Uh, we do tend to see it more with a grass-finished animal. Uh, and even some of the grass-finishing options that we've seen down here where they're relied a lot on supplement, too you tend to not see as much yellow fat. So I think as long as you're giving them some kind of concentrate in that ration, you tend to, to, to address that issue.
0: You know, I, I actually used the, um, cause we were, we were harvesting at a set point in time when, whenever, you know, I was putting out eight, 900 pound, um, cattle which would have been yearlings on pasture in the spring and then around november uh we would put a potload together and and take them up to green bay and and process them and um, equal numbers off of the treatments uh, are as equal as we could get but um i used the japanese scale they they had a um, a scale that had fat color and um actually came in a little bitty plastic <laughs> believe it or not and it was uh, uh colored plastic pieces that were glued and had a glass kind of case over it. And, um, some people would take pictures of the fat and that, and, and, uh, but we just use the visual comparison. And I agree, Daniel, in, in most situations, uh, providing just a little bit of supplementation like we did really offset the fat color issue that folks talk about. And, um, I'm trying to remember, but I think it was, you know, maybe 20 to 25% of the carcasses might have been called yellow fat. And in most instances, they, they weren't the yellow orange fat color that we'd see in a cull cow that came off a of pasture. They were more of a a buttery yellow color color that would be kind of called for yellow fat. So from a consumer standpoint, I always said that if you're direct marketing beef, I don't think that that fat color is one bit of a concern. Um, I don't think consumers are going to be taken away by it. And it's mostly the fat around the edge. The marbling still is that nice white color. And if we're trimming that fat anyhow uh, down to a quarter of an inch or so, I never felt it was that big of an issue. Um, did you have any issues as far as, uh, dark cutters or anything of, other than we might see discounts come in hard bones or we didn't see
2: any of those, Jeff, but in all fairness, you know, we had a small sample size. Uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, one of my concerns would probably be, especially with those heifers would probably be some hard bone issues, possibly, um, dark cutters, uh, When they took them up to the meat lab, I think they rested them a day before they killed them. So they didn't just come off the truck because for us to get up to the meat lab, we're talking about a four hour drive. So, uh, you know, and that was one of my concerns when we started talking about this to folks, because within, you know, most people that are doing this, uh, at best, they may have an hour drive to take them to the local slaughter facility. Whereas in this case, we, we took them all the way up to Starkville uh we probably saw some shrink issues uh that uh most of our folks that are doing it at home won't see uh and that's just you know that was that was the restriction that we had because we had to get them killed at at the meat lab
0: and so katie um as you get ready to wrap up your project and that what kind of carcass data are you going to think about trying to collect and then um how do you intend to use that in some of your educational programs that you're trying to get pulled together for 2021?
1: Yeah, so we're gonna make sure we get you know some of the standard measurements, things like hot carcass weight, ribeye areas, marbling scores, uh, back fat thickness, those kinds of things, um, and ideally. What I want to hope to be able to, I'm hoping actually that we do have some variation in quality grade um, when we get done here. And I think we we might with the two different management styles, um, but just to show people what that animal looked like on the hoof. So I'm trying to collect videos, slow-mo videos as they're ex- exiting the shoot uh, when we weigh them so that you can see the body weight the ultrasound back fat thickness and what that animal looked like all on the same day. And then right before they go, we'll, we'll collect all that information again so that you can see what that looks like when we actually are talking about a carcass. Uh, and to see what these, you know, fully finished carcasses actually look like in terms of, of marbling score and that kind of thing. Cause, um, you know, if you look at, at what our, um, sort of our national averages on, on quality grade, I think that the genetic basis is there to, to, for these cattle to grade in a lot of situations. We just got to feed them and manage them to that point. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm hoping. I, I do hope that there's some variation, um, at least maybe across the treatments to, to show folks, you know, that, that maybe the, those cattle out on pasture needed to go another 28 days or that kind of thing. Um, to to fully get them there but uh, I have a feeling uh, as we stagger our kill dates with other availabilities that they will be all all pretty much ready to go by the time uh, it's their day so uh, we'll see how much of that variation we actually pick up
0: which really is more real world because people are going to be harvesting a couple you know each couple weeks or month as they get people interested in buying them and that so Uh, if maybe that's not a bad thing to show the genetic impact and feeding program, I'm producing more of a consistent type of product over time.
1: Yeah. You know, that's something too with the the local beef that, that we don't, I don't know if we talk about it enough that, you know, our consumers are used when they go to the grocery store in that slot on the meat shelf where the USDA prime ribeye is or the USDA choice ribeye is that they're used to that very consistent product. Whereas, uh, when we start, you know, finishing on a, a small scale, if we're new to it, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, consumers may not be used to to having some potential variation there. So uh, learning how, how to do it and producing a consistent product so that those, you get those repeat customers and that kind of thing. Um, that because they're used to, to buying uh, a very consistent product at their at their grocery store. And that's because the grocery stores have the ability to to pick and choose what what gets on their shelves so
0: so as we wrap up uh, this morning a couple of maybe take-home points from each of you if you're thinking about doing freezer beef and what you kind of have learned in the feeding programs and that um, are are there Daniel are there some take-home points that you'd like folks to consider or that you'd like people to to think about when they're looking at freezer beef
2: Well, a couple of things that we've, we've really talked to our producers about and the things that, that to me have really stood out as highlights are that, uh, uh, they need to understand the costs associated with it. And they need to understand that, uh, uh, you know, to produce a quality product is going to take time. It's, uh, uh it's it's truly an investment uh, you know katie alluded to it with you know talking about grass finishing cattle but i think almost that level of planning is required for for producing a freezer type animal as well you're going to have to you know if that animal's 800 pounds or so you're going to be looking at keeping them another 150 160 days so uh more opportunity for that animal to, to potentially die possibly die uh Added feed costs uh, because of the fact that we are buying feed as we need it. We're more at the mercy of market swings, market fluctuations. So you know we can't we can't necessarily contract our grain in like a, a large operation might be able to. Uh, so those those are the pitfalls that people need to be aware of, uh, and just truly understand your production costs so you know exactly what to sell that that carcass for when you do sell it. Uh, and understand that, uh, you know, some of the slaughter information and that's, I think if we were to take this a next step further, we probably need to go more into like the processing part of this, because some of the, some of the, the most, more surprising comments came from the fact that people were surprised that a 1200 pound animal would dress out in 700 pounds. So what, what happened to those 500 pounds? Uh, uh, you know, not understanding the shrink simply because, you know, we're not in a traditional cattle feeding state where, you know, everybody knows that 62 and percent what an animal will dress out at. So, uh, you know, just these things, I think, keep in mind that uh, you will lose some to dressing percentage and that uh, you need to understand what it's going to cost you and that uh, the added time and the added exposure to markets and, and risk are, are, are real.
0: Those are some some good points. And, and I think we cannot stress enough to to have some enterprise budgets down that to follow those production costs. And I mean, just being more informed about what those true production costs are going to be so you know whether or not it's going to be profitable at the end of the day. Katie, do you have a few kind of take home points or, or thoughts for folks that might be looking at producing freezer beef?
1: Yeah, and I I like Daniel's comment about every day that you own that animal or you're responsible for that animal, it's another day something can happen to it. That's one of my one of my things I tell folks whether they're looking at finishing beef on their own farm or retaining ownership in the feedlot. Uh, you know, there's things happen all along the way, and and now all of a sudden that that potential profit you thought you were going to get from marketing a, a carcass or or a finished animal uh, has gone away completely. So those are things to think about and and things to be aware of. Um, some other points, uh, that I think are important for folks to understand is, is to understand your timeline. Uh, you know, if you have a a kill date set for, for June, uh, you know, and you've got a, a 750, 800 pound animal, uh, and it it's March or April, that animals, you're probably not going to get it done. Um, in that time frame so uh, just understanding that the timeline and the time that it takes to actually get these cattle finished and and pick a, a production system that that fits your availability and fits you know what you have your resources your labor but also when you can get those animals processed uh, if you need to be targeting three pounds a day and your production system is only going to allow for two that's that's an issue Um, the other thing is to, to think about your story and the story that you want your consumers to know, because I think the consumer in this situation, they're in it for the story. They're in it for knowing who produced that animal, who fed that animal, um, and how that animal was raised. And those are all things that are are really important, um, to our consumers. I think becoming more important even to our consumers. Uh, so, and especially the consumer that's looking to purchase local beef. And so, um, just knowing what that story is and, and, and taking some pride in that, I think is, is an important piece to, to making this a profitable business.
0: Yeah. Those are some things that we forget about a lot of times is telling that story. And, um, you know, it, it, a lot of times it's just education too, Mm -hmm. you know, just spending the time to educate your consumer on the products. And that goes even to, preparation, you know, so they have an enjoyable eating experience and they don't take a roast and throw it on the grill. (laughs) So um, that's one of those things that, that we can do. And the, the, you know, the beef council has done a great job on giving us uh, recipes and that, that people can utilize to hand out to um, their consumers and know how to prep those and fix them in the meals that they're going to enjoy. So Well, I want to thank both of you for joining us this morning. I think this has been been very informative, and I believe that folks that have listened to this will take away the few things to think about in the freezer beef side. And then also uh, maybe get a greater appreciation that regardless of where we're at, we can finish cattle and we can do it on a multiple uh, uh, feeding programs from grass fed to straight Uh, more conventional feedlot diets but um, relying on those locally available feedstuffs i think is going to be one of those things that you you both addressed and uh, we can do it we can put together rations that will finish uh, cattle so i appreciate all that insight that you shared and want to thank you both again for joining us on the beef bits podcast and uh, until next time i hope everybody stays safe and uh, if you haven't listened to any of our previous podcasts be sure to go Uh, back and look those up, and uh, hopefully you find those informative as well. So thank you, uh, Katie and Daniel, for joining us this morning.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah,
2: thanks, Jeff.
0: Appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you both soon, and and maybe we'll catch up at uh, animal science meetings this summer. Daniel, I don't know if you're coming up to Louisville for those or not. Yep, I'll be up. I'll be up. Katie, are you going to be there as well?
2: Yep,
1: I'll be there
0: great well it's a it's a great meeting for us in the southeast to get together and and see all of our colleagues and so uh, i'm looking forward to it since uh we didn't really or i didn't go to the last one to be honest I, i missed the last one so it's been a while since i've seen a lot of you this has been Jeff Limcooler with the Beef Bits Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to receiving feedback. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and continue to hear more information regarding beef cattle production, industry news, and programs going on in the Commonwealth.